family, turn in your copy of God's Word, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We will pick up here in our second sermon in this series in verse 10. If uh, your child moved into first grade this year and this is their first time to go to kids' worship, if you're going to send them that direction, now is the time, parents. They are lining up in the back. As you uh, find your place uh, there in 1 Corinthians, before we uh, stand and read together, I want to make mention of a resource that we provide for you, uh, for our congregation, that I think is one of the most important things that we do here. And sometimes people will tell on themselves that they don't use it because somebody will come and say, well, I didn't know this was going on, and I, I don't do this, but I desperately want to say, well, if you were using our bi-monthly prayer guide, you would know that it is going on because you would have been praying for it. So every two months, every other month, we publish a prayer guide for our congregation to pray for the various ministries of our church, both within our local congregation, our Pray, Sin, Go ministries outside of our local congregation, uh, and, our, um, and our Pillar Network partners here in Hampton Roads. This is a great opportunity for you to just every day pray for something different in the life of our church. These prayer guides... Uh, you can get at the information desk. We put them in your small group rooms. I even think a lot of our off-campus small group leaders grab some and bring there. I would encourage you to use the prayer guide not only in your own prayer life, um, but also in your small group praying for what's happening in our church. It really does serve a double purpose. It gives you the opportunity, first and foremost, to pray for the mission of God here at Nanswin River. But if nothing else, it kind of lets you know what varying ministries are doing that you may not be involved in. I'm not involved in uh, many of them. I just I can only be so many places, right? Uh, but I can participate in them by praying for them. And so we encourage you, uh, the September-October prayer guide is available uh, today. Would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? We're going to start in verse 10 and consider, our, consider this morning down through verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, brothers... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling amongst you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful to you this morning for the gathered body of saints that is Nansman River Baptist Church, for our opportunity to sing together to one another as we sing to our Lord of our desperate need of Christ and his gospel. Lord, I echo that last song that we sang together, 
now. Lord, we need you. I need you as the preacher. This congregation needs you as the hearers of your word. Father, we thank you for your word and its goodness to us, its instruction for us, how it corrects us, draws us back to the gospel of Jesus, centers our hearts and our unity on that which matters most. From the outset, Father, I thank you that this is a congregation that understands that the gospel is most important. That the word of God and standing firm on that foundation is what brings us, a diverse group of people, together united in Christ in this place. May we guard and guide that unity, we pray. Help us to do so through your word and its instruction this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning's sermon, probably unsurprisingly, is entitled Unity Matters. I want to begin really with an opening illustration as we begin to think about why unity matters. And and I want to begin really by affirming what I have already prayed for you. Maybe you're new with us this morning. You need to understand you are sitting in the midst of a unified church. I don't say that publicly from the pulpit and say something different in private. I, I genuinely consider this to be an incredibly unified church because we have a clear understanding that it is the gospel of Jesus that unifies us. Let me illustrate it this way. When I first became the pastor here a little over eight years ago now, in the first couple of years of my time in pastoral ministry, when I was away from this church, talking with other pastors, talking with friends, people in the ministry, um, and they would ask about you, they would ask about this congregation, I believed the greatest compliment that I could give this church is this, that this body, this church, was exactly who you said you were. Unfortunately, sometimes churches will paint a rosy picture on the outside when they're searching for a new pastor, and then that pastor will get there and all too often find that things are not what the people claimed it was. Well, that wasn't the case. You were very honest. Those of you that were here in 2015, you were very honest about who this church is what this church wanted to be. You said those things publicly, and and I believe you meant them. And so for a first couple of years, that's the way that I talked about you. I thought, this is the greatest compliment, at least in those years, that I could give to this church is you, you didn't hide anything. And I appreciate that, by the way. But the way that I began to talk about this church in the subsequent years changed Because as I and my family kind of integrated into this congregation and grew in our love for you and became truly a part of you, it didn't matter anymore what had happened before I got here, what you said about this congregation. Really what mattered most is who we are now. And so when people ask me about our church, and they do often, here's what I begin with that we truly are a unified body of believers. 
I can think of no better compliment to give to you, to us, this congregation, that we are what Paul is describing here. Now, you may ask, well, pastor, does that mean we could just end early? We've got this figured out. Can we, you know, go on about our day? Well, no, and here's why. Because unity matters. And, and as you see there in your handout, the main idea of the sermon today is that the unity of the church is of vital importance to our ongoing mission to make disciples. And if we don't guard it, we'll lose it. If, we, if we're not careful, we will fall into, the sim, into similar traps that the church at Corinth had fallen into, that it created such great disunity that Paul has to begin his letter to them and actually continues not only in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, but chapter 4. For four chapters, Paul writes to them about unity. Unity will be the overarching theme of the sermons that I preach from now till Thanksgiving as we walk through these first chapters of 1 Corinthians together. Why? Why would we spend so much time thinking about this one subject? Well, because the Word spends this much time thinking about this subject. And because of their failure to be unified as a congregation, it serves both as a warning to churches that are disunified and to churches that are unified to guard that unity, to protect it. To, to continually strive for it because human nature and the lies of the enemy will always seek to lead us to be in conflict with each other. The more God does in and through the people of God here in this congregation, the more the enemy will want and desire to cause conflict and strife and disunity. And hear me, a disunified church is a church that takes its eyes off the mission and no longer is effective for the kingdom of God. If we are going to continue to be an effective church for the kingdom of God, it requires us to prize the unity that we share together because of the gospel. So church, unity matters. And with that in mind, let's see how Paul walks through really this introductory idea that will dominate these first four chapters of this letter. First, the church must strive for unity by agreeing in one mind. Look with me in verse 10. Paul writes, I appeal to you brothers, that word that's translated brothers, it really is a gender neutral word. It, it's addressing all of the people in the congregation. Some translations translate it brothers and sisters. It's fine. He's writing to the whole congregation, not to specific people, but to all of them. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's making his appeal to the highest authority, to, to, to Christ himself, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So Paul's appeal to them in the name of Jesus is that they be unified. And he describes this unity first in a negative sense, that there be no divisions among you. Then he describes it in a positive sense, that you be two things of the same mind and the same judgment, which really are the same thing. 
that Paul is calling the church at Corinth and the word of God is calling the church at Nansman River to be unified in our mind and judgment, that we not allow division to come into the church, that we be of the same mind. And churches being of the same mind is a common theme in Paul's New Testament writings. It appears in at least three of his letters here in 1 Corinthians, the end of the book of Romans, which he actually writes from Corinth. Maybe that was why it was on his mind. And in the New Testament letter that he writes to the Philippians. And and what he writes in Philippians actually helps us to see what does it mean for a church to be of one mind. So if we would, let's consider what Paul writes there together. He says in Philippians 1, verse 27 and 28, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So in in the book of Philippians, Paul reveals kind of this same goal, the goal being that the church of God, local churches, the congregations that have covenanted together to be a local body of believers, that they would be of one mind together. And Paul ties this to their mission. He says, this is a clear sign of your opponent's destruction, but of your salvation. That the fact that diverse as we say it in one of our core values, that we value a diverse, multi-generational congregation. When people look at this church and they see people that come from different ethnic backgrounds, that come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, and truthfully, one of the most difficult ones come from different generational backgrounds. One of the hardest kind of churches to be is a church that has both young people and old people in it. And so when people look at our church and sees us unified across, across all of those spectrums, here's what Paul is saying. Paul's saying when, when, the, when they look from the outside, they're going to say, what in the world brings those kinds of people all together? If, if we were all of similar background, similar ethnicity, of the same generation, we all kind of made the same amount of money, maybe we all did similar kind of work, you know, we were all kind of blue-collar people or we were all kind of white-collar people, we were all kind of government employee people, which, by the way, we've got all three of those here. If we, if we were to just be kind of one of each of those things, it wouldn't say a whole lot about how the gospel unifies us. But the fact that we have people from all over that spectrum in each one of those areas, it ought to cause people to look at us and say, how do those people agree? How do those people be of one mind? Well, we do that because the gospel has unified us, that we're able to stand, he says in, first, in Philippians chapter one, standing firm in one spirit of one mind, side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's the gospel that unifies us. So that's speaking corporately. Well, how do we contribute to that then individually? Well, in Philippians chapter two, Paul gives us the answer. He says, starting in verse one, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love and participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. So there it is again, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others, having have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So corporately, Paul calls the church to be of one mind. And then individually, he says, you contribute to this by not demanding your way. You contribute to this ultimately by following in the footsteps of Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for many, who, 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 who put off all of the benefits of the Godhead and put on flesh, stepping into this life, Paul continues there in Philippians 2, taking the form of a man, living as we live, that when we consider how Jesus humbled himself in that way, and then Jesus is our example, the answer to our individual contribution to unity is humility, that we are stay of one mind corporately when we as individuals count others more important than ourselves. To be of one mind and the same judgment requires that we each as individuals think like Jesus so that we then corporately can be unified in the gospel. Requires of us great sacrifice John Wolverd, long time, he's now passed maybe 20 years or so ago, but he was the longtime president of Dallas Theological Seminary, talking about unity, said this, the only way it is possible to have one mind is to have the mind of God derived from the unity of the spirit of God, a unity which comes only when believers find the will of God and give themselves unselfishly and unstingingly to its fulfillment. How do we strive for unity in our congregation? We do so by putting ourselves last. We, we do so by putting our, other people's needs in front of our needs. And we do so by recognizing that the mission of God is more important than my opinion. Now, that brings up an important point for us though, church. Being of one mind and the same judgment does not mean that we're always going to have the same opinion. We're not always going to have the same opinion. Let's just be honest. Some of you would really love for your pastor to be in a coat and tie this morning, and I very rarely am. That's your opinion and my opinion, and it's fine, right? We can all still be here doing what we do because truthfully, it doesn't matter. Some of you would have liked for us to sing songs that were written 200 years ago this morning, and some of you would like us to only sing songs that have been written in the last year. But the style of music and when a song was written, does that really matter for the sake of the gospel? No, it doesn't matter. We had to buy some new coffee pots for the lobby last week because so many of you are now drinking coffee here. You really are. It's great. I mean, it's fine. Whatever. But we're, we're, we were making so much coffee, we bought some bigger ones. You probably saw them last week or this week as you're coming in. And you know, one of our longtime senior members of our church came to be noticed that, came to me last week and said, you know what? This is a real conversation. I'm not making this up. Came to me and says, you know what? I don't love that people are bringing coffee into the worship center. But this isn't my church. This place isn't about me. And so if they want to bring coffee in there... It's fine. I don't like it, but it's fine. That's the kind of attitude we all need to have. We can differ in opinion and still be unified. 
And, and that's the glory of the unity of God's church is that we can have differing opinions. We can come from different perspectives. We can approach things from different perspectives. We can come from different backgrounds and yet be unified in the gospel, striving to be of one mind by keeping that which is most important central to us and by always committing as individuals to be like Jesus. Number two, the church protects its unity by guarding against divisive internal tribalism. What Paul does here in these middle verses is he actually introduces the specific cause of division within the Corinthian church. And as we read this, you might think that sounds crazy that they would be disunified over such a thing. But honestly, this is one of the things that throughout the church age, even into modernity, has caused disunity in the local body. Listen to what he writes here in verses 11 through 13. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ, then he answers a question that we're gonna come back to in a minute. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So there's some questions about the conflict we need to first answer about the text. First, who's Chloe? Verse 11, for it was reported to me by Chloe's people. (laughs) We're not told who Chloe is. We're not told who Chloe's people are, but the people that were first receiving this know who Chloe is. There's, there's a lot of imaginative uh, things commentators have gone into to try to figure out who Chloe is. I think probably the most likely scenario, and this is just me having read about this a lot this week, the most likely scenario is Chloe is probably an Ephesian, because remember last week Paul's writing this from Ephesus, most likely an Ephesian, and her household does business in Corinth. This is a pretty good explanation for it. Both of, one of these was on one side of the Aegean Sea. Ephesus was on one side. Corinth was on the other side. They regularly did business together. And so just imagine a scenario where a fairly wealthy household is doing business across the Aegean Sea. There's Christians in that household. They go and they're there in Corinth. They find local believers. They come back to Corinth, they come back to Paul, or they come back to Ephesus where Paul is, and they're like, you're not gonna believe what's going on over there. So Chloe's people have come back and reported to him. I think that's a fairly likely scenario. It's just quarreling. And look at what the quarreling is about. They're, they're, they've, become, they've become divisive and tribalistic internally in the church, that they're rallying around personality. I'm in Paul's camp. Well, I'm in Apollos' camp. Well, I'm in Cephas' camp. And then maybe some of them are saying, I'm in Christ's camp. You would hope everybody would say they were in Christ's camp. But the way this actually reads makes you wonder if anybody was actually claiming to be in Christ's camp at all. So we have to ask this question, who are Paul? We know who that is. He's writing this. Who's Apollos and who's Cephas? Well, the Bible tells us who these people are. First, Apollos in Acts chapter 18, which we considered Acts last week as as we were looking kind of at the timeline of the church at Corinth being established and then Paul writing back to them from Ephesus. And we read this in Acts 18, sorry, verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. So that one side of the Aegean, see, this this is after Paul has left there on his second missionary journey. He was an eloquent man, competent in scripture, 
He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he understood the gospel, but there was a piece missing. And so he began to speak boldly in the synagogues, but Priscilla and Quilla, a husband and wife, heard him. They were a husband and wife. They're prominent in the church at Ephesus. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross the, to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who uh, through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scripture that the Christ was Jesus. So Apollos is a Jewish person native to Alexandria. So he was kind of raised in a place where rhetoric and eloquent rhetoric was really important, which it was in, in Alexandria during that time. He's instructed in the gospel and he becomes this eloquent preacher that's kind of preaching in some of the same places that Paul is preaching. He eventually ends up in Corinth. And what we know about Paul is that Paul didn't claim very much eloquence at all. It wasn't that Paul was unable to be eloquent. There are places that we see him very eloquently. But that, that he, he makes a point even of, of not speaking eloquently because that was so prized in the Greco-Roman world. But Apollos was very eloquent. Now, there's one other guy mentioned here named Cephas. This is actually an easy one. Cephas is just the Aramaic word for Peter. This is Peter, all right, the apostle the, that was close with Jesus, right? And there's some evidence, at least, that Peter, up until this point, had, had visited Corinth. Eventually, Peter ends up all the way in Rome. And so I think both of these, Apollos and Peter, Apollos and Cephas, are mentioned later in the book. They're familiar. The people in Corinth were familiar with them. And I think what's happening, if we just try to figure out what's going on here, Really what's happening is that there, there's a differing style between these three guys. Paul, who says, I'm, I'm intentionally not being eloquent. Apollos, who is eloquent. Peter, who is Peter, okay? Blunt, uneducated, or less educated than the other two, certainly fishermen from Galilee. And so you can imagine that within the church then there are divisions, even though the letter doesn't tell us, there are divisions that seem to be personality driven. And if Apollos or even Peter were preaching wrong doctrine, Paul would correct them. Priscilla and Aquila correct Apollos in Acts 18. Peter, or Paul corrects Peter as it relates to his relationship with Gentiles in the book of Acts. So it's not as if Paul wouldn't have said, don't listen to these guys, but later he's going to say, listen to them. So it's, it's not about the content of their message. It has something to do with the personality of the people that are bringing the message. So then what's happening? Well, for some reason, different groups, different tribes are starting to form in the church in Corinth based off of either the kind of teaching that the person preferred, all of it being doctrinally sound, but the kind of teaching, the kind of argument that was being made, and it seems around, at least to some extent, around who baptized whom. So we have, keep this in your mind, and I want to ask a few questions of the text. First, is Paul saying that division is never good. No. He, he's, he's saying bad division 
is bad. But there, even later in 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to tell them of good division. In 1 Corinthians 11, we'll skip ahead, we'll get back, we'll get to this in months. He says in verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. He had already heard there was divisions among you. He'd already addressed it in the letter, but here he is coming back to it. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, Paul's talking about a completely different kind of division here. He's already written to them three chapters worth, three and a half chapters worth, about unity and about the divisions they're experiencing. And then he uses that teaching to illustrate something different in 1 Corinthians 11. In 1 Corinthians 11, those kind of divisions, Paul's actually praising. He's saying at least some division is important because what had happened in Corinth is there were some people who were not believers and it was demonstrated by their lifestyle that they were not believers who were being accepted as a part of the church. And Paul's like, you need to have division here. So we fast forward to 2 Corinthians that speaks of this kind of division. And Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. You know, some passages become so used in specific situations that we often think that those passages are about those situations. This passage so often gets used about marriage and a Christian marrying a non-Christian and us encouraging young people to not marry or not even date somebody that's not a believer, right? That, that we think that's what Paul's writing about. This is not what Paul's writing about. 2 Corinthians 6 is not in the context of marriage at all. It doesn't mean it doesn't apply to marriage. It's a principle that applies to marriage. But the context is the local church. And Paul's writing to them in 2 Corinthians about something very similar to the writes to them in 1 Corinthians. He's like, you can't be unified with unbelievers. You, you can't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. There are times that division is necessary. So if we ask the question, is division ever good? Yes, along gospel lines. I've said this before from this pulpit. I'll say this again. If I, if I ever take this platform and say something that is in direct contradiction to the word, you should correct me. If I fail to repent of that, you should remove me. That, that, that you, you should cause division over gospel issues. And, and the Bible supports this. Paul is not saying that unity is the ultimate prize for the church, but unity is still very important in the church. J.C. Ryle, the 19th century Anglican bishop said, unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. It is the very unity of hell. And it is this kind of unity that some in Christian circles have sold themselves to by selling out the truth of God's word and the gospel. They have become united with idols. Church, may that never be so of us. Let us never prize unity to the point that we're willing to sacrifice the truth of God's word and the gospel of Jesus. So there are times that division is good, but in the case of 1 Corinthians 1 and in the case of disunity in most churches, it is not good. So when is it bad? It's bad when it unnecessarily divides Christ. Go back to verse 13. 
Paul asked this question. So they're, they're taking these camps around personalities, around preaching styles maybe, around who baptized whom. And he asked this question. It's a rhetorical question. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the, in the name of Paul? He's presenting this rhetorical question as a way for them to try to figure this out on their own. This, this internal tribalism that was, pro, that was prominent in 1 Corinthians, and by the way, is still prominent, unfortunately, in churches in modernity where people will flock to a pastor, they like the way that he sounds, they like the way that he preaches, they like his ministry, and then what they end up doing is they, they develop this sense of pride that they're able to be under that ministry or under that teaching, and when that guy moves on or that guy dies or something happens, right, and somebody else comes in, now I don't like that guy. I don't like this new guy because he's not like the old guy, even though their messages are the same, they just maybe are presented in a little different way. This, hap- this is happening in churches this morning all across our world. So the same pitfalls that the church at Corinth fell into are the same pitfalls that often churches will fall into. This cult of personality and creating divisions among it. And Paul says, is Christ divided? He says, why would you claim to be of Paul's camp? You weren't, Paul wasn't crucified for you. Apollos wasn't crucified for you. Peter wasn't crucified for you. Hear me, church. Ryan Bryce wasn't crucified for you. Don't have some kind of unbiblical loyalty to anybody that stands and does what I do. Going all the way back to the apostles themselves. Because it was only Christ who was crucified for us. It was, only, it was only in the name of Christ that we were baptized because Christ is preeminent. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says that Christ is the head of the body of the church. So let's think about the church. Who's the head of this church? It sure isn't me. It's Jesus. Christ is the head of the church. He is the beginning, Paul says, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent means above all, first and foremost. Jesus is the only one that died for you, my friend. Don't have some kind of unbiblical loyalty to anything else. We should all claim team Jesus alone. Paul ends his argument or close to ends his argument in chapter three about unity in this way. He says, so let no one boast in men for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and yours are Christ's and Christ's is God's. Oh, church. Let us guard the unity of our church by keeping our eyes firmly fixed on Christ and not allowing us to draw lines that Jesus wouldn't draw through his word in our congregation. Number three, the church continues in unity by keeping the gospel at the center of its message and practices. Look at how Paul ends this. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Then there's a parenthesis here. Paul remembered something. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not the words of eloquent wisdom, well, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied 
of its power. So who are these people that are mentioned here? Well, Crispus was mentioned in Acts 18 as the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth that converted to Christianity. Gaius is Paul's host in Corinth. He mentions him in Romans 16 as Paul is writing Romans from Corinth. He talks about Gaius and living in Gaius' house. Stephanus is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 16 who was with Paul in Ephesus. He was the first believer in that entire region. So Paul baptized these people, likely some of the very first believers in the entire region of that section of Greece. And he says, I'm glad I didn't baptize anybody else so that you wouldn't associate some, le- uh, some undue level of importance with, with the practice of baptism. So that leads us to another question. Is Paul minimizing baptism here? Well, in a way, yes. But let's see how And more importantly, why, before we just toss baptism out with the proverbial bathwater. First, the church is commanded to baptize. Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Baptism is a part of the great commission and given by the Lord as an ordinance to the local church. So the local church, when people have credible testimonies of faith. We saw this last week with two people. We baptize them as an outward expression of an inward reality. So we can't throw baptism away because the Lord commanded us to baptize people. And that's not what Paul is doing. Paul himself actually writes about the importance of baptism in Romans chapter six. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you know that all who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. That's why we say buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. It comes from Romans chapter 6. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. For the life he lives, he lives to God. So that you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, why read and consider all of that in the midst of this? Because we have to understand Paul's perspective on baptism. Paul's perspective on baptism is that baptism represents Christ's death and the new reality of Christians dying to self and living to Christ. that that's what baptism represents. It's why we baptize believers. It's why we practice that as a local congregation. But baptism does not save anyone. Baptism is an outward expression of what God has done inside someone's heart as he has called them from darkness to life, as they've been born again. So baptism then is secondary to the gospel. You, you, somebody, you may be hearing me like, oh, this is a Baptist church. We are a Baptist church. <laughs> Baptism is so important to us, we put it in the name. And yet I will stand firmly on this statement that baptism is secondary to the gospel. Is baptism important? Sure. Do we think all who come to saving faith in Jesus should be baptized? Sure. 
But does baptism save anyone? No. So then we must, think about what Paul is saying here then, we must rightly order the practices of our church that make sure that what we are emphasizing is the gospel of Jesus. So the baptism is secondary. And then I'm gonna further Paul's point here, who baptizes is even less important. I would say who baptizes, we'll use this word, is tertiary. Meaning we're not even gonna, we're not gonna even debate it. Sometimes, unfortunately, practices like baptism and other things ends up supplanting the mission of God's church. And so we, we stop being centrally focused on the gospel and it as our unifying message and we become unified around other good things that the church does. Baptism is a good thing, a commanded thing, but it is not the central thing. And who baptizes is certainly not going to be a central thing. Paul says, I'm glad that I didn't baptize but three of you. And I hope I don't baptize anymore. Wait a second. Is Paul saying he doesn't want people to come to faith in Jesus? No. He says very clearly, I've been called to preach the gospel. And just people in the church can do the baptizing. Last week, this is fortuitous. It serves as a great illustration. Last week, we baptized two. One of our lay elders baptized someone. And a father in our church baptized his daughter. And this is not the first time that either one of those things has happened, but when somebody other than me baptizes, and particularly when somebody other than an elder baptizes, inevitably I get this question after the service. We let people do that? Well, folks, we've been letting people do that for a long time. I'm I'm kind of a little surprised now that I still get the question. We've we've been letting people do that for, for a long time. It's okay that you asked me the question. More than one person did. We've been letting people do that for a long time. So if I could just have a little excursion here for 20 seconds and state our position on this, because Paul's stating his. Paul's like, I baptized three of you. I'm glad that other people baptized everyone else. So let me just state our position. Any member in good standing of Nansen River Baptist Church can baptize under the oversight of our elders. Any member in good standing at Nansen River Baptist Church can baptize under the oversight of the elders. If I never step foot in that baptismal pool again, because you are leading people to Jesus in your homes and in your spheres of influence, and they come to faith in in Christ because you've shared the gospel with them, and they want you to baptize them, and that means I never step foot in that baptism again, fantastic. Church, we... Proclaim the gospel of Jesus as what is centrally important to us. Who actually puts some under the water? It's truly meaningless as long as it's done in a way that the church is affirming that person's testimony of faith. So we affirm that testimony of faith. You have noticed last week, Barry stood in the baptism, one of our elders, offering pastoral oversight. That is a representation to you, the congregation, that we have tested this person being baptized, and we affirm that what's happening here is a good thing to happen, and that you had already voted, actually, that we would baptize her. So then, who is baptizing is not what is important. What is important is that people are hearing the gospel of Jesus, that central message that unifies us, and that we are then rightly ordering our church with the gospel at the center of what we do. So what? Remaining unified as a church requires significant effort, but has eternal value. It requires significant effort, 
I can speak of our church being unified today and tomorrow, hear me, tomorrow we could lose it. It is both the greatest compliment that I can give to this congregation, but it is also one of the things that I pray the most for, for us, is that we will stay of one mind, one understanding, not allowing division to come into our church, but being unified together because it has eternal value, but it is going to require work. It requires work, if you go back to kind of the middle section of the sermon, it requires work because it requires us as individuals to live like Jesus and our flesh doesn't wanna live like Jesus. And so when our flesh doesn't wanna live like Jesus, it, it naturally wants to seek those divisions and seek those, those tribal lines along things that we shouldn't be divided over. We have to reject that putting in the effort, putting in the work, recognizing that a unified church proclaims a gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world, that we make disciples that make disciples in a way that passes the faith from one generation to the next. In another place where he writes about this same subject in Ephesians chapter four, the apostle Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Church family, we are a diverse group of people that has been unified by the gospel of Jesus. May we never Hear me, church, may we never lose that as a reality of this congregation. And it can slip away from us. It can slip away from us as we start to turn inward, as we start to try to have our own needs met, as we start to try to demand our own way and, and, and have our own opinions rise above the opinions of the needs of others. So God, would you guard us? And my friend, maybe you're here today, so a friend brought you here, and you hear me talking for 45 minutes now about how the gospel is central to our church. You say, what is that? Why, why would this diverse group of people come to this place every Sunday and be on mission together? It's because we all understand this one truth, that above all else, Jesus Christ died according to the scripture that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture so that we might have life in him. My friend, that's the gospel that unifies us and it is the gospel that can save you today and bring you into the family of God no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter what you look like, no matter where you live, the gospel can change your life and can bring you into this unified family. But apart from the gospel, there is no hope for that. So church, would, would we never lose that message? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the unifying message of the gospel of Jesus and for the unity of his church here at Nansman River Baptist Church. God, would we strive for that unity? Would we guard that unity? Would we work individually to make sure that we put on the minds of Christ so that we are not causing unnecessary division? And would you, by the power of your spirit, impress the truth of the gospel on the hearts of those who have not yet believed?
so that they would come to saving faith, be born again, made new in Christ, seeing the other side of the curtain, the access that they have to God through Jesus. Thank you, God, for how you're using our church for your glory, the proclamation of your gospel. Would we always remain unified in that, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Church family, would you stand as we sing together?